0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a series called Empowered Living, The Resources of the Church. It's volume two of Dr. John's Ephesians series. So let's go to Dr. John now as he brings a message entitled Breaking Down Barriers.
1: a part of sinful human nature that sets up barriers that keeps others out. On December 1st, 1955, Mrs. Rosa Parks, an African-American seamstress, sat down on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. It was an established rule in the American South at that time that Negro riders had to sit at the back of the bus, and if the bus filled up, they were expected to surrender their seat to any white if it was needed. When asked to move to let a white rider be seated, Mrs. Parks refused. She didn't argue, but she didn't move. The bus was stopped, the police were called, and Mrs. Parks was immediately arrested. African-American pastors and community leaders became involved, and by December 5th, they had organized a boycott of all buses in Montgomery. Many walked to work. Whoever had a car arranged rides for friends and strangers, and the police struck back. They arrested anyone picking up people in a carpool for illegally picking up hitchhikers. Any African-American person standing at a street corner was arrested for loitering. Dr. Martin Luther King, who organized and supported the boycotts of the buses, found that his home was firebombed. His wife and baby daughter miraculously escaped injury, but Dr. King demanded that angry blacks learn to meet hate with love. It took almost two full years, but finally, the Supreme Court of the United States on November 13, 1956, ruled that Alabama's laws requiring blacks to sit at the back of the bus and demanding they stand for whites was illegal. Everywhere we look there are stories of dividing walls of hostility. You know, for those of us who believe such a thing wouldn't happen in Canada, we need look no further than the treatment of Chinese railway builders, Japanese people interned in the Second World War. Or the treatment of our Aboriginal peoples. Everywhere we look, in every country, among every people group in the world, there are dividing walls of hostility. In the world of the time of the writing of the New Testament, those walls were especially high between Jews and Gentiles. Jews had an immense contempt for Gentiles. Many Jewish rabbis taught that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel. He hates the nations was not even considered lawful to help a Gentile woman give birth to a child, for it would only serve to bring another Gentile dog into the world. And if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, the parents of the Jew would hold a funeral service to show that such an action was the equivalent of death. Some Jewish rabbis stated that Abraham stood at the gates of hell, making sure that only uncircumcised Gentiles entered there, and making sure no circumcised Jews ever shared that fate. I don't want to give you the impression that all this hatred went only one way. The Romans did hate the Jews, and the Greek philosopher Plato said that anyone who wasn't a Greek was a barbarian and were his enemies by nature. And the point is made, there have always been barriers between people, and nowhere was that barrier more seen than in the Jewish exclusion of the Gentiles. I want you to look at Ephesians 2.14 and note the phrase, the dividing wall of hostility. No doubt Paul was referring to a reality found in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The temple building itself was built on an elevated platform. Round it was the court of priests. East of this was the court of Israel, and further east was the court of women. These three courts were all on the same level as the elevation of the temple itself. From this level, one could descend five steps to a walled platform, and then on the other side of that wall were 14 more steps to another wall, beyond which was the outer court of the Gentiles. From any part of that court, the Gentiles could look up at the temple, but were not allowed to approach it. They were cut off from it by a four-foot-thick wall, which had a notice placed in Greek and in Latin. It read, No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. In other words, all foul, uncircumcised, Gentile dogs are going to be shot on sight. That's a dividing wall of hostility. But the Christian faith had the answer. Christ was the end of all divisions between people. He alone brings a community of brotherhood and sisterhood among those who were formerly at odds with each other. In Christ, Germans and Jews can love each other. In Christ, Japanese and Koreans can eat together at the table of the Lord. In Christ, blacks and whites can call each other brother and sister. In Christ, we have peace. The passage we're about to read offers us the only hope for a divided human race. It's also a fabulous insight into the life of the early church and a prescription of how Christ wants us to live today. Here, then, is the little secret. Christianity does not end with an individual relationship with Jesus. It always moves from individual salvation to corporate living. At the heart of authentic Christianity is a true and loving and caring, including community. But here's the problem. How do you build authentic community in a hate-filled and divided world? In fact, how can we build it in a world where people are simply divided by culture? Ephesians 2 tells us it will work. It begins by telling what we formerly were as individuals. Now it carries on by telling us what we formerly were as a community of people. It tells us that we were all once divided. So let's read Ephesians 2.11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. See, every one of us should be aware of how unlikely the early church community was. Jews and Gentiles formed one church. And so our text begins with this word, remember. It's a word to the ancient Christian community. Remember how it used to be before you belonged to the church, says Paul. Remember who you once were. Remember your culture. Remember your people group. Remember your society. See, most of the Ephesian Christians were Gentiles, and they had heard the Jewish insults. And they had the insults of their own for the Jews. Let me give you a bit of history in regard to that. I'll start with something recorded in Acts 10. The church began in Jerusalem. Jesus was proclaimed as the Jewish Messiah, the hope of Israel, yet Jesus had told his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but how could they do that? One day, Peter the apostle received a visit from an angel telling him to go to the home of a Gentile Roman centurion, preach the gospel there. As a good Jew, he had never been in a Gentile home in his entire life. Who knew what was there, what uncleanness, what Gentile filth might greet his eyes? Listen to what he says when he arrives, Acts 10:28. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. <laughs> That's an amazing and groundbreaking statement. By the time the church began to form in the Gentile world, it was always multicultural and an international church. In fact, the first Gentile church, the church in Antioch, responsible for the greatest missionary project in history, was multicultural and international. Acts 13, verse 1 says, Now there were at the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Look at those names. Barnabas, that's Jewish. He comes from the island of Cyprus, and is from the tribe of Levi, the tribe of priests. He knows the Jewish law and would have been schooled against association with Gentile uncleanness. Simeon is also called Niger. Since Niger means black, many have suggested he was an African man. Lucius is a Latin name, perhaps a Roman who comes from Cyrene in North Africa. Menean came from the household of Herod Antipas. Many studying this passage suggest he may have been an adopted brother of Herod, the king who had beheaded John the Baptist. And of course, we know Saul as the Apostle Paul, who wrote the Ephesian letter. The point is, the early church was international from its beginnings. They, coming from every conceivable background, found in Christ something greater than their differences. And this, by the way, should be relevant to the church in North America, an ethnically diverse and ethnically divided world. Notice Paul says Gentiles in the flesh. Then later Paul says they were called that by the circumcised Jews who are themselves circumcised in the flesh only. So what does that mean? It means that all the things that kept Jews and Gentiles apart were things done in the flesh, things done on the outside. They are not things of lasting internal and spiritual value. A Jew might protest, wait a minute, circumcision is not fleshly. It's been given to Abraham." It came directly from God that all his male descendants should do the same as a sign of their belonging to the covenant. But even while that was so, it wasn't the whole story. Moses and Jeremiah repeatedly commanded the Jews to circumcise their hearts. The point is that simply being circumcised didn't make you right with God, and the absence of circumcision didn't cancel out one standing before God, and in Israel. Circumcision came to mean less about faithfulness to God and more about excluding others. Gentiles were called uncircumcision. That's also our story.
0: You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors With Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors With Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's one 336 3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.
1: Before our coming to Christ, not only were we sociologically divided, we were also religiously and spiritually divided. Ephesians 2 verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's an amazing thing about the Bible's witness about the unity of all people. It's found in Romans 3 verse 9, for we've already charged that all Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. See, there is unity in the human race. Regardless of your spiritual background, be it Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist, or or Hindu, we're all under sin. Our religious background doesn't save us. Paul speaking to Gentiles tells us of our condition as Gentiles before we came to Christ. First, he says we were separated from Christ, which means we had no Messiah. Therefore, we had no promise of one who would save us from the curse of sin. Second, he says we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, which means we weren't the chosen people. None of us, Gentiles, had received chosen nation status. Third, he says that we were strangers to the covenant of promise. He means that we had no promise from God that would do us any good. God had made no legally binding agreement with the Gentiles. And fourth, we had no hope in eternity. And finally, in summary, he simply says we were without God. It's not to say we didn't believe in God. We just didn't have the God of Israel. The God of Israel is the only true and living God. And it's an appalling list. Not only were we divided from each other, we stood outside the chosen people of God. We had no promises without hope and without God. That's what we all were before we met Christ. We were culturally and racially and socially and religiously and spiritually divided. The word that describes all of that is the word alienation. We were alienated from God and from each other. We were alienated from Israel. And then Paul again inserts a word we've seen earlier. It's the word but. Notwithstanding all of that, God found a way to end our alienation. Yeah, it is true that we were once divided, but we're now united in Christ. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love that language. Far away and near. That was traditional language in Israel for Gentiles. The Gentiles were far away and Israel was near, but we who were far away have been brought near. It's language borrowed from Isaiah 57 verse 19, which simply says, "'Peace, peace, to the far and to the near,' says the Lord, and I will heal them." So how are we healed? Well, that answer is given in verse 13. It came through the blood of Christ. So do you see, the blood of Jesus not only heals us from our sin, but it heals our divisions. It makes it possible to love one another, regardless of our backgrounds. And that, by the way, is why we celebrate baptism. See, regardless of your background, whether you came from a Christian home or a Buddhist home, Catholic or Protestant, Jew or Gentile, you've got to be baptized. All people barriers are taken away. Everyone approaches God in the same way. We all come through the precious blood of Christ. No one has special favors because of their background. And how has Jesus accomplished that? He did it by breaking down every barrier. Look at Ephesians two fourteen to 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice four things that have happened. First, we learn that Jesus is our peace. I know the text says he himself is our peace. Well, literally the text only says he is our peace, but the way the words are arranged in the original language tells us there's an emphasis on the word he. Paul meant to say that Jesus alone is our peace. Peace isn't possible between people, especially as here stated, between Jew and Gentile, were it not for Jesus. So how did Jesus do that? How is he our peace? Well, the rest of the passage tells us. And so second, Jesus is the end of all religious and cultural distinctions. Jesus abolished the law of the commandments in ordinances. So how did he do that? Seeing that in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them? Well, the answer is that Jesus fulfilled all the moral demands of the law, keeping all its requirements, but he abolished Jewish ceremonial law. In other words, the Ten Commandments still stand. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means that the ceremonial law, such as, well, ceremonial washings and Sabbath restrictions and Jewish dietary laws and circumcision and rules on ceremonial purity, All these that formed a barrier between Jews and Gentiles, all these that made it impossible for Gentiles to enter into fellowship with Jews, every single one of these had been wiped away in his blood, were saved by grace only. Once you accept that, you'll realize that we can fly across any barrier to God. Imagine how it must have been in the early church. A Jewish convert to Christ went over to his Gentile brother's house for the first time in his life. He approached the house and noticed the Gentile had the carcass of a pig hanging, covered with blood and still drying in front of an open barn door. He's shocked and appalled, and he tries not to show his discomfort. He's invited in. He notices a young man in the house, about the same age as his daughter. What if they attend the same church, and this uncircumcised young man falls in love with his daughter, and he recoils at the thought? It's Saturday, and that family's been working in the fields, and he tries not to think about that. And just when he's filled with more disgust than he ever imagines, the Gentile convert says to him, let's eat. Then he brings out a cup and he pours in wine and he brings out bread and he breaks it and he takes it and hands it to him. And he says, this bread is the body of Christ. This cup is the new covenant poured out in his blood. And suddenly all animosity fades. The dividing wall of hostility crumbles. The two of them bow together and unite in prayer to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, but also the Savior of the whole world. If that was possible in the first century world, it is possible today. In fact, that's our mandate in Christ. It was John Oxenham who wrote, In Christ there is no east or west, in him no south or north, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. This is Jesus. First, Jesus is our peace. And second, he's the end of all religious and cultural distinctions. And third, Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. A new race has now emerged, and a new person has come forth. Suddenly, I'm no longer a German-Canadian, I'm just a Christian. I now have more in common with my Japanese brother or sister who knows Christ than I have with any German who doesn't. I have become one race with everyone who bows the knee to Christ, and that means everything. If you've come from the Punjab or from Indonesia, from Africa, Asia, Europe, North or South America, the features that mark us apart is that we are in Christ. I want you to notice the word new. The Greek word is the word kainos. It doesn't mean new like something recently completed, like saying, you know, I have a new car. It means new like something that was never in existence before. Never before did God have a people made up of every nation and tribe and tongue. Never before was it possible for one church to come together from various language groups and cultures. I don't know if you're aware of it, but God demands that every local church never be content with only reaching one ethnic group. If you live in a part of the world where you're the only ethnic group, I guess that's what you're made up of. But if you're living in a place in the world, as most of us are, where there are numerous people groups living next door to each other, Having a church of only one ethnic group does tend to send the wrong signal. It signal that the barriers between people groups remain, that our cultural identity is greater than our unity in Christ, and that's unacceptable. Either there's one new man, one new culture, one new people group in Christ, or there is not. I know for some this is a great challenge, but it is necessary for the sake of Christ that we agree to Christ's agenda. And so, first, Jesus is our peace. Second, Jesus is the end of all religious and cultural distinctions. Third, Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. And fourth, Jesus has reconciled this new humanity to God. See, I love the way verse 18 ends this section. It speaks of the work of the Father, the Son, the Spirit. The Son has reconciled us to the Father. The Father has received us. The Spirit has made this access to the Father a possibility. Hence, whatever hostility once existed between us, the people of Jesus Christ, that hostility has been put to death. And if that hostility to Christians of different nationalities still exists, we need to repent of idolatry. The only race that now matters is found in Christ. To God be the glory.
0: Uh, thanks so much for your message today, John. a uh, start to a great series. Let me ask you this. Um, you know race relations are at the top of everyone's thoughts these days. Does or should the Christian have a unique perspective?
1: Well obviously I think it begins in our relationships with each other within the church uh, And I know that out in in the society as a whole there are so many other things that have become a part of this and uh, they include philosophical definitions to things and different philosophies and so forth. But at the heart of that is people are feeling marginalized. And uh, there is something that the Church of Jesus can give, and that is this whole idea of God creating a new race uh, does bring together the marginalized and make them one.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Empowered Living right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like none other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our last trip said, now I can relate to the places of the Bible visually because I've actually been there. The planning and organization of the trip was excellent. I'd love to go on another Back to the Bible Canada trip in the future. So make your plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada with on-location teaching with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, evenings of entertainment with Laugh games Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. More information and trip itinerary and registration forms are available now. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to learn more.